Clubhouse. Do you love Christmas? Do you love Christmas movies? Do you wish it was Christmas time year round? Well, do we have a podcast for you? Welcome to the 52 Weeks of Christmas podcast. Whoa, 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 Clark. We're keeping this show family-friendly. Where's the Tylenol? Welcome to week 21 of the 52 Weeks of Christmas podcast. This is Caroline. And this is Mike. Tonight we're talking about Scrooge, that 1988 twist on the classic Charles Dickens tale, A Christmas Carol. Uh, This is actually our second movie doing a version of A Christmas Carol. Obviously, we had done A Muppet's Christmas Carol. Oh, God. I, I don't even know. Probably no, two, a million two, weeks two, ago. Two months ago, probably, at this point. <laughs> uh, it did, you know, week to week, it doesn't seem that long. But when you say we're on week 21, that's like four months of doing this already. It's kind of crazy. I know. Time has gone five, by so five fast. Five months. It's five months. <sighs> it's crazy. It's crazy. It's just like the Christmas season, man. You're anticipating it. And then once it comes, it just flies by. This movie uh, falls into the alternative Christmas tales, right? Even though it's based on yes. a Christmas Carol. It definitely is uh, probably a little more bad Santa than it is Charlie Brown Christmas. So let's get some background facts on this a little bit. So this movie was written by Mitch Glazer and Michael O'Donoghue. Michael O'Donoghue, I saw that name and I was like, I know that name. So I had to go looking him up. He was actually the first credited head writer of Saturday Night Live. Nice. I like that. I like that Bill Murray connection. All of a sudden, already you start to see there's a pattern here of this is a comedy movie by comedy guys, right? Glazer worked on SNL for one or two seasons. O'Donoghue was there from the beginning. They were both there when Bill Murray came in. He's He's not an original cast member, but he comes in, I think, the beginning of the second season or middle of the second season. He replaces Chevy Chase. Um, and he's still there in 8081 when I think Glazer comes on and works on SNL. So these three guys know each other. Bill Murray goes on to be, in, he's in Caddyshack. He goes on to do Ghostbusters. Bill Murray, after Ghostbusters, is overwhelmed by fame, Caroline, and he drops out. He he moves to France and he drops off the grid. He kind of it's semi- total Molly Ringwald situation, huh? Is that what Molly Ringwald did? Yes, yeah, after had- all her fame, she totally took off and went to France. Really? Maybe she was yep. hanging out with Bill Murray, doing a little like <laughs> doing like an a- stars of the 80s like retreat somewhere in con like berets or, unite yeah like we're all go, <laughs> we're gonna go ra- uh, raise grapes together or something i don't know yeah. yeah so he comes back he's actually offered this movie to do this movie in 1986 1986 and he's like no nah, no i'm not ready yet i'm not ready to come back and actually do a movie he actually does a little cameo in a little shop of horrors uh, in 1986, but that's like a really small role. He plays like a groupie who's like is obsessed with the dentist in a little shop of horrors, and he he's trying to get Orin the dentist to give him the gas to make him feel pain. He's like a he's like a sadomasochist kind of guy. And Steve Martin, who plays the dentist in the movie, is like, "No, you're a freak!" and like like kicks him out of his office because he takes away all the fun because Orin the dentist in Shop of Horrors he wants to inflict pain. So if you're into it. 
like you kind of kill his buzz. Anyway, that's Bill Murray in A Little Shop of Horrors, and so very, very tiny role. Other than that, yeah, he's just on hiatus for the four years, and he's not interested in doing this in 1986, but he comes back in 1988 to work on this movie. Do you know who directed this movie? Yeah, sure. It's Richard Donner. And he did a lot of different things. He did Superman in 78, The Toy in 82, Goonies in 85, Love, Lethal Weapon, 87, and Lethal Weapon 2, 89. I was kind of a big Mel Gibson fan back when it was okay to like him. Sure. No, it's not. I mean, Donner Donner created, really, the Lethal Weapon franchise. He actually ends up directing all four movies. It's interesting. He kind of squeezes this one in between those two, right? He goes Lethal Weapon 87. He's like, all right, I'm going to do another Christmas movie, right? Because Lethal Weapon also set at Christmas time, the original one. He does this, and he's like, you know what? I'm going back to Mel and uh, Danny Glover, yeah. But I don't think of him necessarily as a funny guy. I, I guess, I mean, Lethal Weapon is obviously very funny and has a very madcap uh, performance in, in Mel Gibson's character, which not unlike some of the scenes here with Frank Cross, you know, Bill Murray's character in Scrooge, there is a manic energy thread maybe running between these guys. Everything I read about this movie, it seemed to be a lot of clashing of ideas that Richard Donner thought this was supposed to be one kind of movie and Bill Murray and Michael O'Donohue and Mitch Glazer thought it was supposed to be a very different kind of movie. Mm, that's never good. It's never good. And, and I think what you wind up with is you wind up with a movie that no one really understands what it is and no one is really happy with. And that kind of tracks here because I feel like we were... you know, by the end of it, kind of, I was like furrowing my brow. Like, I'm not sure what I just watched there because some part of it was, it gave you that like airplane kind of vibe where there was mm-hmm. like silliness and like totally antics that or go well beyond. And then there was these other parts where you're like, this seems too serious or too scary or too whatever that you're like, I don't know what I'm watching here. I'm not sure what genre this actually is. It feels like it has multiple personalities in genre wise as a Christmas movie wise. Is it a comedy? Is it watching someone have an actual mental breakdown before? your eyes well let's get into our history right because i want to know is this a movie that you saw as a kid did you watch this back in the day i didn't see this in theaters but i as soon as this began the rounds on cable and on television i watched this movie constantly i was a big fan of this movie even watching it getting ready for this so many of the lines came back to me i remembered so many of them this was like one of the first like it's a christmas movie but like i feel like a big kid watching it kind of thing you know there's some bad language in here there's some violence in here i vividly remember the the front of the tape cover in and blockbuster uh with him like with the cigar the cigar yeah on the with the skeleton hand yeah i totally remember that so well and he looks insane i mean he looks insane on the cover yeah so was this is this a movie that you've like shown your kids have you continued watching this other than watching it as a kid that'd be a hard no <laughs> no, I, no i mean i don't even think i watched it back in the day to be honest with you i think i've seen clips on tv that you know when it was on and you just kind of flip by and you're like oh what's this and you watch it for a couple of minutes and you move on but like I had never watched it from beginning to end. I had watched it so much as a kid and as a teenager. I knew this movie so well. As an adult, you know what? I still overall like this movie. Uh, It still made me laugh, but I detected a lot more problems in it than I ever did when I was younger. The violence and the humor seemed much more mean-spirited. Seemed much more mean-spirited 
without any kind of underlying humor to it. It seemed to be mean for meanness sake in a way that I didn't remember as a kid. I remember thinking, ah, he's, he's like a kind of like a jerk, but I kind of found it funny or it was like maybe a little endearing watching it now as an adult and, and, and in 2021 versus 1988 or 89 when I probably first saw this, you know, it was mean just to be mean is how it kind of hit me now. And I, and I think that's one of the problems with this movie. You know, I think as a kid, it's funny. We are very brainwashed into the idea of the grouchy boss. Like I'm thinking back to like the Flintstones with like Mr. Slate and he was always grouchy or like Mr. Spacely was always yelling at George on the Jetsons. Like bosses are always supposed to be grouchy and stuff. So I feel like as a kid, you're looking at it and you're like, yeah, well, bosses are grouchy. I mean, that's what we've been told. This is what it is. So it didn't come off. So like you said, mean spirited, but then when you're older and you realize like, he didn't know the secretary's, you know, husband had died and all of a sudden you're like, ah, what? So this movie comes out November 23rd, 1988. On that same day, Roger Ebert published his review of the movie. There's a there's a little passage here I want to read because it actually perfectly summed up what I didn't feel as a kid or I didn't pick up as a kid, but I very much felt watching it this time. And I want to see if you agree. Uh, Ebert writes... What seems to be missing are the lightness and good cheer that lurk beneath the surface of most Murray performances. He's often gruff in his movies, but in a way that lets you know he's just kidding. This time, he doesn't seem to be kidding. Moving on, at the end of the review, he's talking about the end speech, that 10-minute sequence where he has his redemption arc live on air during the, the Christmas Carol telling. Ebert writes, The words are there, but the heart is lacking. Murray stands center stage and rants and raves about the spirit of Christmas, but it's not an inspiring speech, and certainly not a funny one. It sounds more desperate than anything else, and it continues at an embarrassing length. It looks like an on-screen breakdown. All of that really, (laughs) really jumped out at me. I I, I think I went looking for reviews of this movie. I usually don't do that because I have confidence in my own kind of feelings. It was so different than I had remembered as a kid in that nuanced way. I wanted to see what other people had said. This so well summed up what I thought. Like, if you look at Murray in Ghostbusters, he's cranky and gruff and sarcastic, but there's a right. twinkle in his eye, you know? There's always a little wink you feel like you can always. feel. You yeah. know? That, yeah, that, that, that he would be, he's actually a sweetheart when you get him behind the scenes. Right. And he's so mean and so selfish and so jaded through so much of this movie. I don't think that end sequence really brings it all the way back to center or, or to the redemption arc that it probably is trying to do. I don't think it gets there. I think it does come off as kind of manic and it does go on for a really long time. Do, do you see that twinkle? Are you picking up any of that Murray twinkle that you usually get the, the, the wink to the camera of, you know, I'm just putting on an act here? No, that's the whole problem for me as well. Like, I don't, there wasn't that relief of he's just kidding. You know, there isn't that like punch in the arm of he's just kidding. It leaned more into that grouchy boss kind of thing where I was like, oh, okay, that's the, that's who he's playing. You know, he always almost has like a little, um, he has a, a funny little lopsided smile that he gives that's a little smirky and he doesn't do that. You know, you don't, you don't get that. That's trademark Murray. Now, I, I wonder, Murray in getting ready to do this movie and, and after this movie was released, there were a lot of interviews given between Bill Murray, Richard Donner, and Michael O'Donohue all gave a lot of 
uh, interviews in the years following this movie. Which is kind of fascinating in itself, because I think that a lot of times when movies are misunderstood and confusing, there's more interviews about it because there's like like this need to understand it. And so it's really fascinating that the writer, the director and the star have to continuously revisit it for years, even though they're on to other projects and new things are coming out and they're still having to go back to Scrooge and be like, "Okay, can we all understand what the heck y'all were doing? Yeah, I, I mean, this movie was a hit by all standards. It's a, it's made on a $32 million budget. It makes $60 million in the U.S., and it makes a total $100 million worldwide. But it was also well known that there it was a contentious set. Richard Donner talks very nicely about Bur- Bill Murray. In the interviews he gave, you know, he has quotes saying, like, you know, in the final scenes of this movie, you see Billy become an actor. Which Billy, really? Uh, you see Billy become an actor. He talked about how he was, you know, so impressed by his improv skills. And so he actually never really throws shade on Bill Murray. Oh, can I just put like a, just a pause button? Sure. You really see Billy become an actor? Yeah. He's already a successful actor. And so, I mean, I don't know. When you say you don't see him throwing shade, I think that's some, that's some subtle shade, but that's shade. Oh, no. Yes. Without a doubt. And I, when I read that line, I kind of cocked my head to the side and, uh, you know, condescending much. Right. Because he's done Caddyshack, which he's, he, you know, that performance is fantastic in Caddyshack that he gives. And Ghostbusters. Ghostbusters lives. I wouldn't say it lives and dies on Bill Murray's charisma. It pretty much does. It's a large part of why that movie is so popular and remains and again, so popular. Think about this. He had gone off to France for four years because of his extreme popularity right. to sort of be like, oh, he finally got himself together and got himself like he's an actual actor. Now it's like, what? He's been on SNL for years. Like, what are you doing? Well, there isn't, there's an aspect to that too, because Ghostbusters comes out in 84, which is this huge hit. And he, he starts to think, he's like, I'm never going to do better than that. He also has a movie that comes out in 1984, The Razor's Edge, which is a big flop. And so it, it then I think spirals him into a kind of a crisis of conscious kind of thing. So I think he, I think the retirement is a combination of, I'm never going to top what I did in Ghostbusters. And by the way, I also feel horrible about myself now uh and i should never act again I, the quote i read he uses the word radioactive in oh, the my. fallout from razor's edge so i think there's a lot of internal struggle going on with bill murray that causes him to move away and there's a lot of stress and i mean he talks about in this movie again in these interviews that he gives in the years afterwards he, he talks about how th- this movie was so stressful for a lot of different reasons one of which was it was the first time he ever had to carry a movie by himself you know there was no ensemble for him to work with which was a big issue for him it was a big stressor for him caddyshack that's a big ensemble movie he has his you know his three brothers in ghostbusters that he's working with the entire time a big family ensemble movie snl big ensemble cast these things that made him so popular he was always surrounded by other comedians to bounce off of here it was really him holding down the ship and it took its toll i mean it was uh it was a stressful project the fact that donner was on this one side and you had Murray and O'Donoghue saying to Don, you don't understand comedy. You don't understand improv. You don't understand what's funny on the other side. It was very contentious. The, the result being no one seems very happy about what got produced here. Now, Ebenezer Scrooge, the, the Christmas Carol is a, is a curmudgeon. Michael Caine in the Muppets Christmas Carol is a curmudgeon, but he's not. 
when he redeems himself, you believe it. The the story of Scrooge, you're convinced that he's so traumatized and so changed by the visits with the ghosts, he wakes up on Christmas morning a changed man. Here, even when he comes through and he realizes he's not dead, he, he says in the elevator after his experience with the ghost of Christmas future, he says something like, you know, he says like, holy ass, and he says, you know, what a lucky break. He's not even like really redemptive at that, at that moment kind of thing. That's not what was happening in 1988. In 1988, this this is this is a time of like Reagan's America kind of thing, right? These are this is the time of family movies, especially at Christmas time. Prancer comes out the next year. The idea of Prancer and Scrooge being Christmas movies in the same generation is wild to me. But it does feel like the kind of mean movie that we would get in an era after which Bad Santa has been made, after movies like Kiss Kiss Bang Bang have been made. There is this review from Washington uh, Washington Post Joe Brown. He gave, in his review in uh, 1988, he writes, uh, the movie was a sprawling mess, but that he otherwise liked it. He does go on to say... Scrooge is unlikely to become a seasonal tradition like It's a Wonderful Life or A Miracle on 34th Street, considering it would age poorly and either scare or be too adult for children audiences. I think the opposite has happened. I, I, and that's my question to you. I think Joe Brown's prediction is what was wrong in 180 degrees. I think this movie has only aged well because it finally found a cynical audience and kids who grow up faster than they used to that can embrace this kind of humor. Is that a wild take? Is that too hot a take? Do you disagree with that? There's moments that could have been like kid okay. Like 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 say maybe back then they would have said, Oh, it's too scary to have like um the ghost of the future have his chest open up and have those like scary muppety things in there. That would be too much for kids. Whereas I agree with you, like kids today, no, they could handle that. But at the same time, when you add in the sex elements that are in here, the I love the solid gold dancers, but there was like parts to that that was like, <laughs> okay, you know, when they're like, You can see your, you know, nipple and all this I'm like i don't know mike i think that that's not that great but i feel like that's something that kids and when i'm talking kids i'm not talking about six or seven year olds i'm talking about right. 10 11 12 year olds but i think the sprawling mess part is the accurate mm. portion of it because it's it's all over the place i mean i don't think that a lot of kids want to sit through karen allen slash claire phillips conversation about the homeless soup kitchen portion of it all. like i don't think that kids are going to be drawn in to Karen's character at all. Bill Murray is funny to adults, but I don't know if he's accessible to kids as much. He's not known for kid movies, you know? No, he's not. But I think I think some of the things that are the physical comedy, things like the Carol Kane bit, the, the Ghost of uh, Christmas yes. present, all that stuff plays well, I think, with kids today. The joke about the solid gold dancers. She's and then the highlight. And the, she really is the highlight. But, but her scene is one of the issues that I have with this movie. But I think it's like, you know, that's a good nipple. Or this, this line, which still made me laugh as an adult, but I remember laughing hysterically as a kid. I think kids would find really funny today too excuse me lumpy around these parts most people call me miss across i'm sorry i'm new here and i got a problem i bet what well my problem is miss little fella oh. i can't get the antlers glued onto this little guy we've tried crazy glue but it don't work have you tried staples staples don't you dare if you staple that little mouse i'll call the humane society i'm not kidding i wouldn't do stapling antlers onto a mouse has made me laugh literally for 40 years. Uh, well, for 33 years. 
But then Karen Allen's response to that is so wet blanket. Oh, she's such a wet blanket. But it's so not fun that even if you start to chuckle at the staple, you like clam up at the at the Karen Allen line. See what I mean? Like she it doesn't. That's where it's the sprawling mess where I feel like, yeah, the staples is funny. And if the guy went like, oh, my God, and she didn't even say anything, that would be a really funny back and forth. But as soon as she's like, I'm going to call the Humane Society. I mean barf i mean this you've ruined the joke completely you know true but to be fair or maybe to as a testament to the fact that i probably need help is uh i'm laughing too loudly at the idea of gluing or stapling antlers onto a mouse's head that i'm not even really paying attention to karen allen well i can't i can't account for you just ignore lines right well she's she's just i'm talking about as a kid though i remember laughing so much at that line that when i knew this was coming up shocker line you you know know, i always have to think about like where am i going to pull for the quote you know like the little clip to play at the end i knew exactly where i was gonna pull from as soon as i saw this i was like i'm gonna pull the staples the stapler uh the staples line (laughs) Uh, let's talk about karen allen though as claire phillips and and her role in this movie before bill murray signs on to do it before he agrees he he reworks the script with o'donohue and glazer Uh, he says that they tore the thing up and rewrote it I i don't know how much they ended up rewriting it but it is documented that the thing one of the two things that they fixed was they greatly expanded Claire's role in the movie and the romance angle between Frank and Claire. That was Bill Murray's insistence. It was one of the two things that he insisted be fixed before he formally signed on to the movie. Interesting that one of the wet blanket issues that probably detracts from kids' interest is something that he kind of demanded be added into it uh another part was some of the family jokes uh and the family relationships i guess between frank and his family grace the cooley family dynamics he didn't like also and so had fixed but the but the claire expansion of the claire romance story that's all bill murray it's not that the idea of him having a romantic partner was important to the movie because i think that that idea was good the idea that he needed someone to show us that he had a heart that he had you know someone who saw the good in him and and that he was a good guy at different points in time if we didn't have those flashbacks to them i mean we wouldn't have any feelings at all really for him so i think that was important i just think that the way it was actually executed matters and it just didn't come through she just ended up squelching his humor rather than playing the straight man. It's very different. Yeah, you know? it's very true. It, yes, exactly. She's not enhancing it. Right. If you watch mm-hmm. like uh, the like Dragnet, right, with uh, Dan Aykroyd and Tom Hanks. Or go to Lethal Weapon. Go to Mel Gibson and Danny Glover, right? Mel acts like wacky. Danny says, I'm too old for this blank, right? But here's the thing. But what he doesn't say is, and if you continue that, Mel, I'm going to call the humane society. Like, blah, you wrecked the whole joke. You exactly, know? exactly. And and his and his being the straight man is also funny in its own right. When he says, I'm too old for this, you know, like, that's funny in its own right, even though he's being the exasperated straight man to it. You're 100% right. I agree with you. It's a wet blanket character that doesn't add any humor to the movie and doesn't really ground it either. Like, you know, in the end, what is it even worth? She leaves the homeless shelter to go be by Frank at the end of the movie. So what's the whole point of the homeless anyway and the goodwill towards men angle? She leaves them to go down to the television station. I think to show how far he he is in terms of saying, like, you don't need to do this. These people don't need you. Like that kind of business where, where you can see people obviously are in need and he just doesn't care but again 
almost too real to everything. The reason why A Christmas Carol really can work in a lot of ways is that they show these small snippets, right? But they're like small and they're meant to tug on your heart, but you don't dwell on them and wallow in them. Does that make sense? So like, like we see, say the little Muppet one, we see the little, you know, the little bunnies, but just for like a second, but we don't like hang out with them and deal with the soup kitchen that the bunnies go to. And the, do you know what I mean? Like where it starts to just bring it down. Right, right, right. Right, exactly. It's, it's not. It's, it's not. It's not meant to be a after special, you know, after school special. But it's Karen Allen, though, right? And, and this is yeah. this is this is Indy's love interest uh, yeah. from the Indiana Jones movies. So you have to fit her in somewhere, right? And more screen time cannot be wrong when you're dealing with that kind of star power in 1988. So that is so meaningful to, for kids of the 80s, and another reason why I don't think this ages well, because I think for us, we see her face instantly recognizable to us. She didn't continue on in this way that I think kids today would recognize her or care that much about her. To us, it's like, oh, look who it is. Oh, we all already have like a built-in love with her. And I just, you know, again, not aging well. It's not like people know her now and have that same love. No, no, I I agree. And when I say this movie has aged better than it was at the time, I think an appreciation way, I'm talking purely the farcical, physical comedy aspects and and the meanness. I think think society is... Is meaner now than it used yes. to be. Jokes about stapling antlers, you know, that would to, work. To, yeah. it would work better <laughs> now than it would be. It wouldn't scandalize kids, you know, like it may have then. The idea of the solid gold dancers shaking their booties, popping, you know, uh, twerking, yes. you know, in 1988 <laughs> isn't as acceptable as it is in 2021. Those are the aspects that I think this movie has actually, I, and I think this movie is far more popular now as a Christmas tradition than it was when it first came out. I mean, yes, it may a hundred million dollars worldwide but you know it's not it was certainly not considered by anyone i mean joe brown's right no one thought this was going to be you know it's a wonderful life or a miracle on 34th street and this is why we're doing this podcast and we're one of the reasons we're doing this podcast this movie in 2015 ign named this the 11th best holiday movie of all time 11th best movie of all time 2016 empire magazine calls scrooge the seventh best christmas film of all time 2017 Time Out magazine called it the 12th best, and the consequence of sound described it as the 23rd best Christmas movie of all time. Well, 23rd, maybe. I'm not giving it any higher than 20. I mean, there, we've, we've we're earned doing the 52 of week. these. I can't yeah, believe this movie is going to rank mm-hmm. in our top 23. This movie, though, has taken on a a significance in its years. And I think it's because society moved to where Frank Cross lived for most of the movie, you know, which is, uh, which is a sad commentary on society. But it, this movie, in a lot of ways, I guess is my point, was ahead of its time. Well, I'm even going to submit the idea that if you start the, with a classic, The Christmas Carol, and you start with that whole idea and you work around that people are because the structure is sound and because the the idea is already there and and been tried and true through many different adaptations you're you're a little bit i don't want to say like cheating but it's like so then when you're considered like a a good movie well it's because you're already starting with a concept that people already accept as this is a great concept the the idea of having this redemption arc and how they show it with the past present and future you know like there's already a structure there that is successful so then it's a little like okay you know 
you kind of pop up in the numbers a little bit higher just because you're doing that. As opposed to some original movie that then, like, Prancer, that then has to, like, win your heart over to start with. Yes, I agree with that. I, I actually, I think that I think that's true. But, you know, there's a lot of versions of A Christmas Carol that have been made, and some get remembered yeah. and some don't. And I think, you know, I read, um, I think it was Collider, called this the fifth best adaptation of A Christmas Carol ever made. Now, I didn't look for this one, but I remember when we were doing the Muppets one, getting ready for the Muppets one, there have been hundreds of versions of A Christmas Carol made. To call this one the fifth best is significant. (laughs) And again, and I'm not that I'm endorsing it. I'm just saying that this movie was ahead of its time in its tone and its presentation. That if this movie was released today with an updated cast, with, you know, not not Karen Allen playing uh, Claire, but like someone of her same... If you you took this movie and you made it today with a current cast of characters, but otherwise the exact same script was the same, this movie would have made probably triple a hundred billion dollars it would have made you know like three times as much i think because this is just humor that is accepted today much more readily than it would have been in 1988 you know with with all the flaws in this movie because how else do you justify the kind of hit and cult classic that like bad santa has become oh stop bringing up bad santa i'm so tired but you can't but you can't because because i'm so over as am i but it's still the zeitgeist though right it's still part of the conversation sort of i mean i don't know how much if you went up to a rando on the street and said like hey do you know bad santa some people would know it yeah but i would bet a lot of people because time has marched on you know i mean bad santa is an old movie now and so i think it was relevant at some point but i mean i don't think that people these days are like yeah yeah bad santa but let's can we get into some of these other casting because i think that when you're talking about casting now i'm super curious who would play some of these roles i was trying to explain a bobcat goldthwait to my kids like we have such a again love for him coming into the movie because of police academy totally loved him in police academy so had this like little kid love of him thinking he was just such a funny guy and then the character he plays here really threw me you feel like he's gonna be the tiny tim of the story it ends up not he is (laughs) he is just a uh, a third act psychotic wrench in the works I mean, he comes in with a gun and and starts yes. to it, it, that's a triggering thing but again I, you know i was like yeah of course that's what's in this movie because i'm like a 2021 brain like that's what that's what you've got in a 2021 movie yeah. you know and 2029 2021 non-traditional christmas movie is gonna have someone who's been fired come back with a gun and start taking people hostage and threatening to shoot people blows my mind that that was in a 1988 movie i uh, agree with you i I, I was trying to think of who would play him now because you're going through that whole thing. So trying to go through that exercise. And oh, he's a tough one because it has to be, you know, who could actually do. And, and you may not you may not agree with me, but I, I feel like it. Um, is it Eisenberg? Yeah. Jesse Eisenberg could play him Ooh. because he can play that like little deranged level of like have like a little tick kind of to him where he seems normal for a second then he's like "Uh, uh, uh," like like he's starting to lose it starting to lose it you know like i think he could actually play him in a very very convincing way i buy that 
I know he's not the Pee Wee Herman that like a Bobcat could like no. also kind of be, but you know, he, there's something to that. If you wanted to kind of like ratchet it to 2021, I think, I don't know. I think you could get that guy. I think you could still get Bobcat. Honestly, I think he's exactly as, I think, I think 1988 Bobcat Goldweight is still pretty much the same as 2021 Bobcat. I'm pretty sure you know? he is. Yeah. <laughs> it's so funny. funny. I keep him and Gilbert Gottfried in the same box they where they, are. you know, I, where they just talk with funny voices to each other in a very tiny box. That's where they live in my head. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I think he, Elliot Loudermilk, my lord. Yeah, uh, yeah. What a what a wild character that I did. I remembered him being the Tiny Tim character. I was blown away at because I didn't remember. I guess I didn't remember the arc or the fact that no, it turns out he's just a, a, a he's just gone postal. Uh, yeah. You know, at, by the end of the movie, and, and too, and stinking drunk on top of the gun. Whoa! The whole thing. Yeah, the yeah, whole thing is it's a, a lot. lot. It's, it's a lot. It's Again, a lot, a lot. please remember, you just said that the kids. This is like cool kid movie for like a ten year old, and, and I'm like, I, no, 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 deranged guy no, no, no. with the gun I who's did, drunk. I, I didn't say that. I'm just saying it's the kind of movie that an, an American audience today would be more amenable to. Kids would be like, yeah, that's hysterical. Like I know people like that. You know, my my uncles like that kind of thing more than they would have been in 1988. I think because a lot of the reviews that I read from this time was kids aren't going to, this is, this is too much for kids. What was too much for kids in 1988 to appreciate this movie or not appreciate, but to get this movie and what it's doing. I think kids of the same age today would get this movie. I think see, I don't get- think they laugh at Bobcat. I think that that character in 2021 is a mental health discussion and a gun control conversation. That isn't funny at all. <laughs> Maybe. And Maybe. so that's the thing. Like, I'm like, I think we went over the hill on him in terms of like, yeah, the pinnacle of laughter for him might have been the late 90s even. But I think that we've in too much awareness, too much like people saying that's he's not a character you laugh at. Maybe. You yeah, know, like, You know what? I think. It's true. Maybe. Maybe it's not 2021 that I'm talking about. Maybe I'm thinking of 2000 to like 2010. 20, Maybe, 2000 yeah. to 2010, the, the millennial generation would have gotten this as kids and found it funny in a way that kids in 1988 wouldn't have. It would Because, I, I, you know, it's I think it would have gone, I think it probably largely went over the heads of kids in 1988. I wasn't thinking about the mental health neither aspect would, no, of this. No, neither was it. There was zero awareness or conversation Tom about it. Tom would be yeah. like, that guy needs help, you know? Exactly, and, and, and he wouldn't laugh at it. That's kind of my point. Like, our kids would be like, that's sad like i feel bad for him and he was treated really unfairly and you know that kind of, i feel like that's what our kids would say you know and and it, and they wouldn't be wrong it's just like they would have definitely miss the humor of his character have you we know? just have we just unlocked the arc of childhood from the late 80s <laughs> to, the, to, the, to the turn of the century <laughs> to, to now because that's it's three possible. distinctive reactions mm-hmm. to it uh, uh, blissfully unaware yeah sweet spot humor my God, that man needs help. Please, let's get him help. And, yeah, and, and that he was treated unfairly. And yes. where's the gun regulations? And where's his mental health intervention? Right. Yeah. 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 Let's get him to a 100%. meeting. Let's get him a hot yeah. meal. Let's get him some a help. Thousand percent. That's what I thought. And and to anyone listening, we're not mocking that. We're just saying no, that's very just, different. It's just and what it's, the world is. I mean, we've where just where we are now. And Elliot could have used help, and it was unfair. And you know all those things. I mean, let's move over to. Um, to Alfre Woodard because man when I saw her I was like smiling ear to ear I'm like I 
love Alfrey. Like she is such quality and I love the heart that she brings to Grace Cooley. Her family was a big redeeming quality of this movie. And as Tiny Tim is in the story, mm-hmm. right? And Bob Cratchit, yes. the Bob Cratchit Tiny Tim, that's what really hooks you in to all the Christmas, uh, well done Christmas Carol story. It's the Bob Cratchit Tiny Tim that really tugs at your heart and says, come on, come come with me. Come on this journey So I kind of love it because think about this. This is back in the 80s and they changed it to be a woman for mm-hmm. one. Bob is, is Grace, right? Mm-hmm. Of color. And we get to see her family and her family dynamic. Again, single mom whole different dynamic than tiny tim and bob you know right. different different more updated more modern look in a way that i think was actually a little ahead of its time i was just gonna say again of this movie being ahead of its time in 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 ways that, that i don't think anyone could have predicted right that works i i liked that and alfred just she's just such a quality actress like she just Really, there was nothing about her that I thought, no matter how cheesy a line she had to deliver or anything, she really, like, she backs it. You know, like, she's a respectful, dignified person, and you got that. She's got a gravitas about her that on on Alfre Woodard's best, on her worst day, is still like the A plus game of most other actors. <laughs> For I, sure. She she just always brings it and and just never ever fails to hook you in in whatever the role is. And I gotta tell you, little little Calvin Cooley, adorable. Oh, he was so so cute. He worked perfectly. Yeah. Okay, I have to ask you, ghost of the past, ghost of present, ghost of future. Who's your favorite of this crew? Oh, I mean, you know, I'm a Carol, I'm a Carol Kane stan. I mean, we, we, <laughs> you and I got to interview her last summer. We did, and she was such a sweetheart. Uh, she was so amazing. That was that was a real bucket list interview. Uh, we got to interview her for the Kimmy Schmidt 3D movie that was coming out. You know, I've been a fan of her. I remember watching Taxi reruns growing up and and loving her character and Princess Bride. She left a mark on for me. I remember her from this movie. This movie was kind of an iconic role so what works for for this character why why carol king why is she the perfect match for this one because of the casual violence that her character is enjoying but it is presented in such a fairy like joyful kind of way that juxtaposition that i think you need a carol king to pull off is just so endearing because you're seeing this like happy, like, oh, kind of character, <laughs> but doing horribly violent things to Frank Cross, you know, and it's and all of that. That's what makes it funny. Carol Kane as a human being feels zany and authentic and like somebody who has that that extra little part of her that would do something kind of wild and unpredictable. And she maintains that through all of her roles. And in this one in particular, it just suits her across the board. She's got that angelic look about her, but yet she's got that twist to her. She's the living embodiment or the tr- of the trick or treat that kids ask for at Halloween because you don't know what's going to wind up in your bag when it's Carol Kane. And I love that about her. <laughs> so just a little behind the scenes about her role in this movie. They insisted on her being physical. Bill Murray says you have to get physical with it. She did not like it, Caroline. She had crying fits that would last up to 20 minutes in between oh, takes because she was so disturbed at, at how violent they were asking her to be towards Bill Murray. But 
But when the camera was rolling, she got into it. She really hit him hard. She tore his lip. She pulled his lip that she tore it. She ripped it. Uh, And production shut down, I think, for three days while he healed from from that injury. So she was like, you know, she's a pro. They were making her do it. It's what they asked for. And so she delivered. But she was so distraught by it. She, yeah, she had crying. Donner and Bill, Richard Donner and Bill Murray both separately reported that they would see her crying off to the side for 10, 20 minutes in between takes because she would get so upset. She has a good heart, you know, and, and that's that's the thing that I love about her. She is by far my favorite. Were there any other members of the cast that really stood out before we get into some of these very wacky cameos, which, again, hallmark of an 80s movie, by the way? I mean, I, there, I Robert Mitchum, I thought, was fantastic as the boss, Preston Rylander. His comment about shifting towards more animal-focused progressing because of the <laughs> amount of dogs and cats yes. that are watching TV and, like, the millions of animals that are in this country, pets that are in this country, really, really made me laugh. And I, I read a... You made me laugh out loud just when you said it. <laughs> I, I, it was funny. It was funny every time I watched it. I watched this twice getting ready for this, and it made me laugh both times. And then I saw a fact that Roku, in 2015, began running... Like, like dedicated channels for your pets to watch, like to leave on the TV sure. while you're not home. So in so the ahead end, of its time. There you go. movie again ahead of its time. <laughs> this movie should have been made and come out in 2010 to 2015. That was the sweet spot for. See, I'm going to go. I'm going back a little bit. I'm saying more like 95 to 99 would have mm. been a, a better spot for. I, it. I, I think 2005 um, to 2010 was the right was the right age for kids. Mm. But uh, so so all of that, the Mitchum stuff, the and. and and the way he, you could see Frank Cross was a product of his environment, like, you know, that he was made to be a curmudgeon and, and really heavily into commercialization and all of that kind of stuff by people like the Robert Mitchum character. And my other favorite uh, recurring uh, cast member in this movie is John Forsythe. I was a huge Dynasty fan as a kid. <laughs> Oh my God, you're such an odd child. My, well, my grandmother my and my two sisters used to watch it. It was like appointment television because they were big soap people. So it was their nighttime soap. And we watched Dynasty. We watched the Colbys. You know? And, and so, so funny. Listen to me, this statement. I was really into Blake Carrington as a child. <laughs> like, oh my God. very funny. <laughs> Joan Collins and Linda Evans rolling down yeah. the hill wrestling. That is no, blazing in, in my memory. Is it in the fountain, right? They like they go, come to blows. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it emblazoned <laughs> in my memory. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so I, I mean, and I think that he's crusty and he's gross looking, which I, I love the makeup job that they give uh, old Lou Hayward here in this movie. But I like that, though. I thought it was an interesting character to, like, let Bill Murray know the Jacob Marley role, right? That's yeah. the, he's, he's, he's playing the Jacob Marley. He's like, you're, you're, you're in for it, buddy, and you're going to have a really uncomfortable night. I like that. I like that a lot. Him and, and I also like liked uh david johansson uh as the ghost of christmas past but i i love a good crazy cabbie <laughs> do you know who he is i didn't realize who he was until i was doing research because he's using a name that i wasn't familiar with i don't know what you mean by do i know who he is like you say that like in like a scary way what do you mean I mean, I, was I familiar with him? Yes, I was familiar with his face and his voice, especially from from where he... though, because I I put it when I when I looked into it, I was like, oh my god, of course, but I it, I had to do a little bit of research. It didn't click with me. I don't actually know where I know him from. You Maybe may you may know him. Up? You may know him better as Buster Poindexter. 
Oh, you for feeling? God's sake. Hot, hot, hot. Yeah. <laughs> That's really funny. <laughs> yeah. It's wild. Yeah. So he's like the front. Yeah. So he's the front man of uh, New York Dolls, uh, the band. Mm. Sam Kinison was actually up for the role, which if you know, if again, this is such a yeah, dating that, thing. That, that would have worked. Our generation would know Sam Kinison and would have really worked well in this role. But uh, David was a friend of Bill Murray's. And so he, he cinched the role for him as the cabbie here. Okay, so tell me, you get one favorite cameo. One favorite cameo. I think I have to go Lee Majors. That starts the movie. Yeah, I'm going with Robert Goulet. When I saw him, I was like, I just like kind of fell on the floor. I was like, Robert Goulet. I haven't seen him in so long. (laughs) That made me laugh so hard. I loved it. And all of us kids of the 80s have to have a moment for Mary Lou Retton. I mean, shut up. When she like did her like her acrobatics across the stage, I was like transported back to the Olympics and watching that in the 80s and being like, Mary Lou. <laughs> Does anyone not remember from uh, from our generation uh, having a Wheaties box with Mary Lou Retton oh, on it? Of course. Oh, my God. Of course. Let's talk about whether this is a Christmas movie. We're at that time of the show. So, Mike, is this a Christmas movie? It is. It's not a great one, though. (laughs) I think it tries in the last few minutes to get there and and realizes it hasn't done all the work it needs to do and all the bones are there and and i think just but just like you talked about the bones before of dickens christmas carol just by having that i think it makes it a christmas movie not to quote mary lou written again i think it has trouble sticking the landing (laughs) nice All right. So for me, yes, it's a Christmas movie. It's using the structure of a Christmas carol, which we all already agree is time honored tradition at Christmas time. But as an adaptation of it and the way that it just kind of zigs and zags between, you know, can't decide whether it's it's supposed to be an adult film or if it's supposed to be super silly kids. Is it supposed to be, you know, heartwarming? Is it supposed to be kind of scary and a a lesson it's all over the place for me and bill murray isn't allowed to shine the way that he normally does and so you can tell all the messiness on the on the set comes through in murray's performance for me where he seems conflicted for me that's where we have some troubles but definitely is a christmas movie how does the last act the the speech how does that work for you because that's the redemption arc right that's the we that's the christmas morning child what what time you know what day is is it uh, a yeah. moment in this movie it goes on a long time what's your take on that whole spiel does it work at all is it is it more madcap does it does it move you at all does it move the needle at all for you i think you have to be more invested in frank cross than i was so then that's the problem it, it only works once you've kind of gone through this this ebb and flow with him throughout the whole journey and then you're like Oh, thank God he finally saw the error of his ways. But let me say this differently. A Christmas Carol is sort of like the carousel of progress. You're supposed to like sit on your ride. It's not insane. It's just like you move from scene to scene to scene and you're watching this person come to grips, move forward, have some progress, whatever. 
This one is like a roller coaster ride of a of a Christmas Carol in that you can never appreciate anything that's happening because you're like yanked in another direction and then yanked back the other way and now you're going downhill and now you're uphill and now it's just all over the place to when you get to the end you don't say like wow I totally understood that you just are like panting like whew what the hell was that and so I don't think you can appreciate his big moment at the end. You want to get some fast facts? Are you ready for some fast facts about this movie? I am. Let's do it. I'm going to start you off with some fast facts right at the beginning of the movie. Uh, Lee Majors, who is protecting Santa Claus in a, a violent Rambo-esque uh, moment uh, commercial, he's actually using the same M134 minigun that is used in Predator. It's the same exact prop. So uh, Lee Majors, though, unfortunately found it really difficult to carry because it was super heavy. Um, so I thought that was funny. <laughs> I think one of the jokes that hit really well were the names of the Christmas television shows from the IBC network. I was cracking up. I really like I out loud guffawed. So Scrooge is one. Father loves beaver. The night the reindeer died. And <laughs> my fave, uh, Bob Goulet's old fashioned Cajun Christmas. <laughs> I left for like two minutes on that one. I was like, old fashioned Cajun Christmas. It's so silly and funny. And then the whole idea, which I think that kids can't even these days appreciate it, how they constantly had to package shows and then call it something like must see TV or whatever. So the fact that they package this and called it, you'll love it. Like that just made me laugh even more. That's so reminiscent of our childhood. For sure. I mean, I think of the Channel 11 and up here, it's the WPIX Yule Log, uh, which actually you can now get on Netflix at Christmas time. Yeah. But it used to run. You used to turn on your TV and it mimicked having like a roaring fire in your living room uh, as oh, a child. Funny. The Yule is a favorite word of mine at Christmas time. Uh, speaking of which, Paramount announced a special edition release of this movie called the Yule Love It Edition. Uh, it was supposed to be released October 31st, 2006. However, it was recalled and uh, is not available for unknown reasons. I say, release the You'll Love It cut, you cowards. Come on. <laughs> That's super funny. One of the complaints about this movie from O'Donoghue and Glazer and Murray was that they shot so much film that got cut, which added to the jumble mess of the final product, that I, I make a bet there's a Snyder-like cut of this movie somewhere that, that, so you know, that they should release. You know? Oh, my gosh. For those of you who didn't realize, playing the Scroogettes were the solid gold dancers who still like that holds another special place in my heart. I didn't realize that Mike had told me this before we had started here that they had actually been canceled by the time the movie actually debuted. So I realized that or I remembered them so fondly from TV. <laughs> I was just laughing. I was like, that's a solid gold dancer. <laughs> That's very funny. It really did. Uh, we've seen so many of these movies that uh, family members get uh, tossed into Christmas movies by directors or stars or writers. This movie was no different. Three of Bill Murray's brothers are in this movie. His brother Brian plays his father Frank. His brother John plays his on-screen brother James. And his third brother Joel was a party guest. I wonder why Joel got such a crappy role. Uh, Joel must not be a favorite. He must 
must be the youngest brother, maybe. But uh, yeah, so Brian, John, and Joel Murray were all in this movie. For those of you who might have recognized some of the music, which I did, um, Danny Elfman did the music for this film, as well as Tim Burton's Beetlejuice, which came out earlier in 88. So this was one of five films that Elfman scored in 88, which was Beetlejuice, Midnight Run, Big Top Pee Wee, Hot to Trot, and Scrooge. Elfman was busy during this time, huh? Busy, busy, busy. Scrooge was nominated for one Academy Award for Best Makeup and Hairstyling, but it lost to, you guessed it, Beetlejuice. So another mm. another shared connection with Beetlejuice besides Danny Elfman. Frank trying to get the audience in the movie theater to participate was entirely ad-libbed by Bill Murray. I love that part, and that part was like one of the times when it actually helped the movie as as funny as that is it like made you feel like that christmas spirit again you know that was kind of lacking because it kind of make, makes everybody like do it together you know there's that like gathering kind of feel of community at the end there that actually worked for me very small moments here there's a little shout out at, at the end of that at the end of the movie where he gives a shout out to uh feed me he says feed me seymour and yeah. Uh, yeah yeah a little a little shout out to a, a shop of horrors love it love it okay mike we are at the end of our fast facts and getting to the point where we have to do our jingle bell rating so while you think about that can you give me a clip for next week i sure can here it goes look mister there's three rules you've got to follow. Yeah, what kind of rules? Keep him out of the light. He hates bright light, especially sunlight. It'll kill him. And keep him away from water. Don't get him wet. But the most important rule, the rule you can never forget, no matter how much he cries, no matter how much he begs, never, never feed him after midnight. You got it? Sure, kid, whatever you say. Hey, listen, thanks, and have a Merry Christmas. Oh, how could I not know the rules of a gremlin? <laughs> the rules of 1984's Gremlins is our next Christmas movie for week 22. Oh, my goodness. Isn't that so funny? There's so many things that don't stick in my head from, you know, like I couldn't tell you math formulas or things that like really needed to stick. But if you were like, tell me the rules of gremlins. Same. <laughs> I could Same. Be like, Let me just tell you, first of all, do not feed them after men. I do not get them wet. <laughs> They don't like bright light. <laughs> I mean, I probably haven't watched Gremlins in 30 years, 25, 30 years, and the rules forever it's stick out to stuck, me. man. I, I use not, don't get them wet and don't feed them after midnight <laughs> constantly. It's it's like a part of like my life uh, that I apply to things. That's you know? very and, funny. Yeah, That's just people, a health tip. Don't eat after midnight. <laughs> well, I mean, sometimes you can't. One man's midnight is another man's breakfast. So That's true. That's super funny. All right, Mike, are you ready for some Jingle Bell ratings? I am. I am. I can't remember if I, I went second last time, so I will go first this time. Okay, men's first. Looking back at this movie, man, I did not nearly, I did not like this nearly as much as I did as a kid, but I really enjoyed it as a kid. There are some stuff in here that still makes me laugh. I really like Carol Kane. I really like the the cabbie gross to Christmas past makes me laugh. There's a bunch of things in here when Bill Murray isn't shouting at me that I like. 
uh, problems I had. It's a very mean. This movie is is almost irredeemably too mean, uh, and I don't think the end makes up for it. And I think some of the bits go on too long. Even as much as I love the Carol Kane's section of the movie, and I think she steals the movie, I, I think that whole bit goes on for too long. I think it, I think they repeat the joke too many times that she's going to hit him. Um, I think the end speech. I get why Ebert thought it was maybe a mental breakdown caught on screen. It goes on. It, that whole scene is like seven, eight, ten minutes long. It's really, really crazy. And it was almost all improvised. That's a lot. That's a lot. I mean, that that's Murray just trying to figure out what we were supposed to do. Like, if I just keep talking, something good will come of it. That's almost how it hits me. But it is there is enough of the Christmas Carol story here that I think it is a Christmas movie. I think it is trying to hit some of those kinds of Christmas themes of stop being a jerk and start loving your fellow man. And I, and I think they try to show us that Frank gets there in the end. I don't think they succeed necessarily at that, but I think they tried to show us that he's a changed man at the end. You know, he bounds together with Elliot and, you know, they hold the, uh, the studio, uh, as hostages, but for a good reason. So they don't cut him off as he's having his epiphany moment. There, as we talked about, I think there's so much of this movie that was just ahead of its time. This movie coming out 15 years later would have been a whole other perception of this movie. Um, and probably would have been uh, remembered even more fondly than it is now and i think it i think people do think of this movie fondly and do think of this as a christmas movie i'm, I'm really conflicted this is actually one of the harder jingle bell ratings i've had to give i think i'm gonna give it i think i'm gonna give it a 7.25 okay i gave polar express a seven okay and i dislike polar express so so much I know. I'm, I, when you just said you gave it a seven, I'm like, what? Yeah, I know. I know. It's crazy. <laughs> That's going to get uh, knocked down in the final review. <laughs> yeah. And so I like this better than Polar Express. I like this a lot better than Polar Express. And I think it's as bad a Christmas movie as Polar Express is. So uh, if I'm giving Polar Express a seven, then I'm going to give this a 7.25. Wow. Okay. That was a lot. I feel like, again, because it's structured on such a classic that already came in with a couple of Jingle Bell points, that was kind of a leg up for it. It got lost in maybe too many cooks in the kitchen, you know, having very different ideas of what this movie was supposed to be. Angry I think cooks. That if- Yeah, very differing opinions. So I think that if Bill Murray had been allowed to shine and allowed to to have those winking moments at us, there would have been a lot more heart in it. And I think we would have believed his his arc better. We didn't have enough of, of him. He is the crux of it for me. He's in the majority of the scenes and he felt conflicted and I'm glad to have given our listeners all the backstory as why he was so conflicted and where he was coming from because I think that that is where we're feeling a lot of the problems and I don't think that it's Bill Murray himself that I think he's a great actor and I think he's a he's a fabulous comedian but I don't think he was was allowed to shine the way that he should have been for that alone I I gotta knock it back a couple points so I think in the end I'm gonna end up with a 6.25 6. Which I know 6. puts 5. it ahead of my Polar Express, which I believe was at a six. Yeah, so you bumped it up the same degree over Polar Express as I did. Yeah, on accident, but yeah, I totally did. 
just when I just when you were giving that reference point, I was like, well, it's better than that. Yeah. But <laughs> there's issues here. There's a lot of issues here. But it has some of that zaniness that only 80s movies had mm-hmm. that is so hard to put your finger on. It's like, whoa, they went too far. And then also like what's in the other parts? And they just couldn't decide if something should be like romantic in parts. Are things supposed to be funny? Are we supposed to be scared? Like it's just too all over the place. You know, it actually reminded me the fact that they expanded the role with Karen Allen. Remember back to our Muppet conversation with Ebenezer's entire romance portion and how that was like edited out in different ones because it didn't make sense Mm -hmm. to have that extra song and the romance and all that stuff. Remember that? Yeah. It was all problematic. It kind of carries right into this. Like, I think they need to stick to A Christmas Carol, the format better. You know, like Ebenezer doesn't have this romance, you know, like leave it alone. Not at that level. Without spoiling anything, we may be seeing a more traditional adaptation of A Christmas Carol coming up in not too distant a future. So we'll, we'll have something to judge this by, and I suspect that this will be very fresh in our minds when we get to that version of it. And I think, I think that'll be a good indication of uh, comparing the telling of the story and for what people add to it and take away from it. So Fantastic. Well, I look forward to that, Mike. This will be fun. It will be. It will be. (laughs) This is Caroline. And this is Mike. Thank you for listening to 52 Weeks of Christmas Podcast. If you guys could head to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, and please remember to rate, review, and subscribe. If you could leave us a five-star rating, that would be fantastic. So Apple Podcasts likes us. And so that we don't have to come to your house and staple or glue antlers to your head. Because I don't want the Humane Society called on me. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you.